So it's our joy this morning to be able to welcome Chris Coleman to preach for us. Um, Chris is a graduate of Biola University and Westminster Seminary in California. Uh, he moved to Minnesota for a couple of years, and then God called him to plant Peace United Reformed Church here in Vancouver in mid-2019. So they've been meeting here at the Living Water Church building on Sunday nights, and uh, by God's grace, they now have a new site that they can meet at, and instead of just meeting on Sunday nights, they'll be able to start in a couple of weeks meeting both Sunday mornings and Sunday night. So it's a joy to welcome um, Chris this morning. We have two scripture passages to read, Malachi chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9. Malachi 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God's inspired word. Good morning. Uh, it is a wonderful privilege and a great privilege to be with you all here at Living Water Church on this, uh, the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, the day we celebrate uh, Christ uh, being victorious over the grave, and the day when God calls his people um, to gather together to worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, and actually, as, as Mark mentioned, um, I'll actually be back in the same pulpit uh, tonight at six o'clock, not with quite so many people here. Um, it's a little weird to be standing in this pulpit and see so many faces, but it's a joy um, to see all of you here um, this, this morning. Um, before we begin and look at these, uh, these words from God here in Malachi and Romans, um, 
Maybe they're not most, maybe not the most uplifting passages, but nevertheless, the Word of God um, to us. Uh, before we begin uh, looking at these these words from God, I just want to say thank you to all of you, um, Living Water Church, for your generosity to us, uh, Peace United Reformed Church, uh, especially to um, the elders for you being so generous to allow us the use of this space uh, to to worship God's people on Sunday nights. So. Uh, with this wonderful opportunity, just thank you uh, for your support um, in our missionary work here um, in Vancouver. So Malachi, the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the last book in our English Old Testaments, uh, but interestingly, Malachi is not the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, but it is the last book before we um, get into Matthew um, in the New Testament. Well, what relevance does Malachi have uh, for us uh, living in this, in this world? Well, it reminds me what we look at here in Malachi 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. Uh, this past spring, uh, my wife and I and our family drove down to California. I'm originally from California. Uh, maybe some of you are. Uh, we drove down to Southern California for my brother's wedding. Um, the, 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 night, the day before the wedding, the night before the wedding, we were at the beach uh, for kind of a pre-wedding party with all of, of my family and the, uh, my new sister-in-law's family. Um, and at the beach, uh, one of these planes flew by. And I don't know if you've ever seen these planes. They have these signs that they kind of trail behind them uh, with black letters, and you can kind of move them around. Uh, they're sometimes used as advertisements uh, for during sporting events. You might have seen these before. This, this time, the message that was trailing behind the plane was a marriage proposal. Uh, from a man to a woman asking, will you marry me? I don't know what, what, what the, the lady said, uh, or I don't remember what her name was. Um, but it's a, it, this was a sign, a display of love, a very costly sign of love. Right? This man spent a lot of time, energy, right? He had to make sure that this, his fiance was at this particular beach at this particular time. Went through a lot of planning. It was a display of this one man's love to a woman. Or here, when we come to Malachi, um, we understand where God's people are in the context of, of Malachi. Uh, the people of Israel, uh, Judah, if you will, the southern kingdom, uh, they were kind of this leftover, uh, the remnant of uh, the great nation of Israel many years ago. And they had, they had come back from, the, from exile. They were back in the promised land, and they were longing, they were wanting, they were desiring, they were saying to the Lord, we need a sign, we need a display of your love for us, Lord. And as we'll see as we come through, these, uh, through Malachi, God displays his love not by sending a plane with a sign, with a words behind it, but God will display his love in three very powerful ways. Before we get to that, we have to understand the actual context in which the Lord is bringing this message to God's people here in Malachi. What's the historical context? What's the historical background for Malachi? As we said, the people who are receiving this word are the people who had been in exile, right? God's people had been taken into exile by Babylon, Eventually, Babylon is conquered by Persia, 
And Persia allows uh, Israelites to come back, to come, come back to the promised land. And as they come back, they've, they've rebuilt the temple, right? If, we, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, in those books we hear of what God's people do in those, in those books. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But even after returning to the promised land, after building a temple, after building walls, the people of Israel looked out and they saw that they lacked political, they lacked religious, they lacked geographic power and authority. The temple, while it was still on the same place where Solomon's temple was, the temple of Zerubbabel lacked the majesty, the glory of Solomon's temple. Geographically, Israel at this time, Judah, is 600 square miles geographically. I don't know if any of you, I'm not very good at understanding what 600 square miles looks like, <laughs> but it's about half the size of the state of Rhode Island. So it's t- tiny, small, within the vast Persian Empire, this huge empire. Israel's this tiny little speck, a backwater town in the great kingdom of Persia. And they're under the subjection of another ruler. They don't have their own king. They're subject to King Darius or Darius. I might go back and forth between pronunciations. Uh, but there's a, there's, a, there's a local governor who rules directly over the province of Judah or Judea. And as Israel looks around on their situation, they, they're, they're saying to themselves, wasn't it supposed to be better than this? Wasn't, it supposed to, wasn't life here back on the promised land supposed to be better than what we see around us? And as they look on their, their situation, they ask this question, does God still love us? Is His promise still true for us? And it's to these people that the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel comes by the prophet Malachi. That's verse 1. Verse 1 of Malachi uh, 1 is really kind of an introduction. And then notice what God says, the claim God makes in verse 2. I have loved you. God's people are wondering if God still loves them. They have no physical or religious or political evidence that God loves them. And yet, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi begins with this claim by the Lord that says, I have loved you. And the Lord is not simply pointing to one particular instance when he loved his people. Right, that, that, that husband, hopefully that husband, hopefully the, the, the fiancé said yes, <laughs> that husband can say to his wife, I've loved you because didn't you see what I did? I arranged this, this, this wonderful marriage proposal for you. He can point to that one instance of showing his love to his wife. That's not what God is saying here. He's not just saying, I loved you at one particular point in your history. The grammar and the, the, the context here. God is saying, I have loved you. I have been committed to you. 
I have been shown you my constant, my constant response to you has been one of love. My continual response to you has been one of care, commitment. And love, friends, is not a it's not primarily a feeling or an emotion, right? We as Americans, we in the West want to think of love as uh, this emotional thing that kind of bubbles up from us. In the Scriptures, love is not as, as much of an emotion, but it's a commitment from God, especially when God speaks to His people. It's God's commitment, or we would say His covenant commitment. Love has covenant implications here. If you're not familiar with the covenant or covenant theology, I'm I'm happy to speak with you more about that um, after the service, um, if you will. But here we see God, the great king, the Lord of his covenant, renewing his promise to his people. I have loved you. I have been faithful to love and to care for you. But then notice the second half of verse 2. But you say, right? This is what God's people say in response to the Lord's claim that he has loved them. But you say, how have you loved us? Lord, we have this rinky-dink temple. (laughs) We're this small little nation we don't have any political power or clout. We all of our half of our taxes go to the Persian Empire. Wait, say that again, Lord. How have you loved us? Well, God is going to prove his love to his people. God will prove his love to his people. And he proves his love by pointing to three particular displays, three examples of his commitment, of his care, of his covenant promise to his people. Firstly, we see God's love is displayed in his merciful choice. God's love is displayed in his merciful choice. God answers the charge of his people, right? How have you loved us? He proves his love by firstly pointing to Jacob. Notice uh, the end of verse 2, after the people's question, how have you loved us? God goes on to say, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. We'll come to verse 3 in the next point, but notice God references in the first display that he shows of his love is his merciful choice of Jacob. Now, this might seem odd to us that God displays his love by pointing to Jacob. Why why Jacob? Well, we have to understand that Jacob here is not limited to one historical person, right? Malachi and the Lord are not just pointing back to the the original Jacob, right? The the grandson of Abraham, the, the younger son of Isaac, the twin brother of Esau, Well, that's certainly where this promise begins. Malachi is saying something more. Jacob refers to all of God's promised people. All of God's promised people. Boys and girls, do you remember Jacob, 
right? He wrestles with God. And what happens after he wrestles with God? What does God do to Jacob? He changes his name. And what does God change his name to? Israel, right? And so throughout the Old Testament, then Jacob kind of becomes this, uh, what, we, what we would call metonymy for all of the nation of Israel. What's metonymy? Well, it's often like we say, we say Silicon Valley, right? Silicon Valley just refers to all of the American tech industry. When the, in a similar way, when, God, when the Bible says Jacob, it means the whole nation of Israel, right? The one represents the whole And so God is answering their question by pointing to his continued love for his people that he has promised to love and care for them as he had promised to do it to Jacob. God's love is displayed in his merciful choice of Jacob. But God's love not only has this quality of the covenant, but it also takes on uh, this... um, this quality of what we would, might say, the love of the Lord is an act of election which makes Israel the Lord's child. It is God's love is his choosing of Jacob, choosing the nation of Israel. And we hear of God's choice of Jacob over Esau, right? If we turn back to the original account of when uh, Jacob and Esau were about, about to be born, Genesis 25, 23, God comes and speaks to Jacob and Esau's mother, Rebekah, and he tells to her this very interesting promise. Genesis 25, 23. God says to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. And we'll see this as we go along more in Malachi 1. There really are two nations that are going to come from these two sons, Jacob and Esau. But God goes on to say, the one shall be stronger than the other. Who's the stronger brother, the stronger twin? Esau, right? The big, burly uh, hunter. But God goes on to say, the older shall serve the younger. That's an amazing promise. Typically in this context, the oldest son, even if they're twins, right, the one who came out first is the oldest one. He's getting the inheritance. Typically, it's the younger will serve the older, right? Notice what God is doing here. He's saying the older, the stronger one, Esau, is going to serve Jacob. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans 9 as we see God picking up this promise, uh, this, this, uh, this choice. Romans 9, 6, we hear of God's showing, displaying His merciful choice of Jacob in Romans chapter 9. God continues to develop and expand His covenant love to Jacob, to Jacob's people. Notice the question Paul asks in verse 6 of Romans 9. Or I'm sorry, not the question, but the statement he makes. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Right? Paul's saying, God's word hasn't failed. <laughs> right? He's preaching the gospel to all, these, to all these Jews. He's proclaiming the gospel to them. And he's seeing not that many come to faith. The Gentiles are responding, right? But the Jews are 
there might be a, a few coming, but Paul is saying, it's not that the promise to Jacob has failed. It's not, and I'll show it to you. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. To show that God's sovereign, sovereign love for Jacob, um, it prefigures the sovereignty of his love for his elect people. He goes on to say to, about Rebecca in verses 10 through 11, And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by the one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, God chose Jacob before they had done anything, before they had any claim to God's love. God chose Jacob. And this is the most remarkable thing that, about this, is that God should choose any of them. Jacob didn't deserve it. Go back and read the story of Jacob. Jacob's original name means trickster. He's basically a hustler throughout his, throughout his life. Jacob didn't deserve God's love. This is the most remarkable thing, friends, is that God should choose to love either of these brothers. If fairness is the issue, neither one deserve God's favor. And that's why it is God's merciful choice. Jacob, I have loved. According to the mystery of his perfect plan, God chose Jacob and his descendants to be the objects of his love. And though they, had done, though they had not yet been born and had nothing, done nothing, either good or bad, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The Lord proves. He proves to his people that he does love them by reminding them of his great promise to Jacob. And as Paul picks up that promise in Romans chapter 9, God's love is displayed in his merciful choice. Secondly, we also see here God displaying His love, His promise, His, His faithfulness to His people. The second display of God's love is His permanent rejection. God answers the charge of His people by secondly pointing to Esau. God's saying to them, yes, I love you, because I have rejected Esau and his descendants. Notice verse 3 here of Malachi chapter 1. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country. I have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. To our ears, this might sound a bit shocking. That God says he hates someone. And as we go through Malachi one, he's not just talking about hating Esau again, right? Just as Jacob represented the nation of Israel, Esau represents a nation too. And we'll see that in verse 4, the nation of Edom. But does God really hate one person or a whole people group, a whole nation? Right? We talk about hate crimes, hate speech in our culture, right? And usually when we talk about hate crimes and hate speech, we're those are things that are, uh, the assumption is, 
that those crimes are motivated by prejudice, whether for, uh, for racial understanding, sexual things, social standing, or sexual orientation. That's what the hate crimes and hate speech are usually decried for. Is this how God hates Esau and, and the nation of Edom? Is God guilty of hating someone, of hate speech? Well, I would submit to you, no, God is not guilty of hate speech. And we know that because it's important for us to understand hate, not in our human understanding, not in our limited view of what hate might mean to us. Because what God is doing here, what Malachi is doing here, is contrasting God's hatred with God's love. We have to understand God's hate in contrast to God's love if we're going to understand it correctly. And so if the love of God is His covenant choice to be faithful, to care, to love Jacob, then His hatred is His covenant rejection of Esau and Edom. Just as God's love for Jacob was more than emotional, God's hatred of Esau was not out-of-control rage. Right? This is not God out-of-control anger towards Esau and Edom. If covenant love is devoted commitment, if covenant love is God's devoted commitment to His people, then covenant hatred is the absence of any commitment or relationship. Covenant hatred is the absence of commitment or relationship. That's how we must understand that when God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And again, Paul picks up this, this, this quotes this passage in Romans 9.13. Remember, again, if we go back to the, to the story of Esau and Jacob, Esau is the older brother, uh, the one who came out first. Um, and boys and girls, do you remember what Esau sold his birthright for? Bowl of soup. Right, a bowl of soup for his birthright. It was from Esau, right? As we saw, a nation comes from Jacob. A parallel nation comes from Esau. We might not think of them as much as the Israelites, but the whole nation which comes becomes known as Edom. If you have your Bibles, uh, a study Bible, and there's a, there's a map at the back of your Bibles, you can see where the nation of Edom uh, is. It's on the, the southeastern side of the Dead Sea, uh, southeast of Jerusalem or Judah. And throughout Israel's history, Israel and Edom are kind of bitter rivals for most of their history. Um, we see this as God's people come back into the Promised Land from the Exodus. The first, the first path, the best path to get into Canaan is to go through Edom. So they come to the king of Edom and they say, hey, will you give us safe passage? The king of Edom comes out with all of his armies and basically says, nope, the door's closed. You've got to find another way around. And they do, right? God's people go in another way into the promised land. That's just one of the instances. Eventually, under King David, David conquers the Edomites, brings them under the rule of Israel, under the rule of Judah. 
Later in the divided monarchy, uh, the Edomites rebel and become independent again. And this is why we see the, the greatest treachery of the Edomites against Israel. As Babylon comes to sack and destroy Jerusalem in the Exodus. Do you know who helped the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem? The Edomites. Read Psalm 137, verse 7. Psalm 137, verse 7, the Edomites cry out that the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem down to its foundations with not a stone left to stand. God's holy city. And yet for these... Judgment is coming against Edom. Notice what the Lord says against Edom. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Well, that's great. God's going to destroy Edom. But then what if Edom says, right, in verse 4, we're shattered, but we're going to rebuild the ruins, right? What if Edom says, well, we're going to rebuild it. We're going to come back. But the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the great king with his host of angelic armies says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. God's permanent rejection of Esau and Edom. God is showing his love for Jacob by promising that even the future rebuilding of Edom will come under the judgment of God. It is an exercise in futility for the Edomites to try to regain their political might. God will bring them low. God will fight and wage war against Edom if they try to rebuild. And so God's covenant love, then, friends, is a two-edged sword. He is free to elect. He's free to reject apart from any consideration or conditions. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. But God will finally display His love for His people, thirdly, in his promised dominion. God answers again the charge of his people, how have you loved us? By promising them his, uh, uh, a, a, a universal, uh, wide-stretching dominion. God promises his people, I will be king over all the nations. Notice what the Lord says to his people in verse 5 of Malachi 1. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. This, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, will bear witness to what God is going to do to Edom. They're going to see it with their very own eyes. They will never again see her rise to any political power. And notice here, when Judah witnesses this continued demise of Edom, God's judgment upon them, how do they respond? 
Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. We might pass over that, that last phrase rather quickly. When was, what was the last thing Judah and Israel said in this passage? What was the first thing they said to the Lord? How have you loved us? Questioning the love and the commitment of God. Now, after they've heard God's promise, now after they've heard of God's mercy to Jacob and his rejection of Esau, they declare, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. What's changed? They're believing. They're hearing the promise. They're trusting in the Lord. What does this mean? Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. If we read through, and I encourage you if you have time today or this week, read through uh, Malachi. It won't take you more than about seven to eight minutes. Um, if you read through Malachi, uh, the, 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 most of the focus of Malachi is on Israel, on Jacob, on the nation of Israel. But there's these kind of maybe sparks or uh, rabbit trails, if you will, these kind of passing references to the nations. God has a international focus in some ways at different points through Malachi. We see a couple of those in Malachi 1. Look at, notice what uh, the Lord says in verse 11 of Malachi 1. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great. Where? Among the nations. Right? Where is God's name going to be great? At the end of verse 5, beyond the borders of Israel. And then notice verse, the end of verse 14, what God says. For I am a great king. You guys picking this up? Great, great, great. Great is going to be the Lord's name. He's going to be a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name will be feared where? Among the nations. God is going to have this rule, this kingdom, this reign that goes beyond this little rinky-dink nation in Judah. God's name is going to be great beyond the borders of Israel. God's sovereign action against Edom is a signal of what the Lord will do among the nations generally. You might say, well, in verse 5, it doesn't talk about a kingdom or a king or a reign. Sure, those words aren't used in verse 5, but the focus is on God's kingdom, His reign. We just heard in verse 14 that God is a great king. If you expand your borders as a king, what are you expanding? Your kingdom. God's name is going to expand beyond the borders of Israel. So the Lord proves to Judah, I love you because I have mercifully chosen you. I love you because I have rejected Esau and Edom. I love you because I am going to establish a kingdom that is beyond the borders that you know. It's beyond anything you could hope, wish, or imagine. Well, friends, as we conclude um, this morning, 
I want, to con- want you to consider again Judah's response to God's love. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? When I say to my wife, I love you, I expect her to respond with, I love you too, dear. If I say I love you and she responds, how have you loved me? I know I'm probably in trouble. God says to his people, I love you, and they respond, how have you loved me? This response reveals the heart of God's people. It shows that they've given more weight to their political, geographic, and religious significance than they have to the promise of God's word. They've given more weight to the size of their kingdom. They've given more weight to the glory of the temple. They've given more weight to the fact that they don't have a king when God was supposed to be their king than to the promise that he had made to them. Their response reveals their sin. And maybe you can relate to Israel's response. Lord, have you seen my finances? Have you seen my family? Have you seen my marriage? Have you seen my life? Wasn't it supposed to be better than this? How have you loved me? How have you loved me? Well, friends, in the midst of this uh, messed up world, it's the title of uh, Extraordinary Love in a Messed Up World. In the midst of this messed up world, a world of pandemics, a world of human trafficking, a a world of political hostility, a world of cancer, divorce, drug, alcohol abuse. It's tempting for us to sit back and ask the Lord, how have you loved us? How have you loved me? Well, in the midst of this messed up world, friends, God reminds you again this morning. He reminds you again of his extraordinary love. I have loved you, says the Lord. And God proves his love. We've seen three displays of it. But most clearly in the scriptures, and especially as we read in the New Testament, the most brilliant and majestic display of God's love for his people was when he sent his only son into the world. Jacob did not deserve God's love, but God displays his love for us primarily in his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 John 4, 1 John 4, verses 9 through 10, John tells us this. He says this, In this, the love of God 
was made manifest, was displayed among us. How did God manifest and display His love among us? God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God. Not that you've loved God. But that He loved us. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most brilliant and majestic display of God's love in this messed up world. And friends, it was as the church proclaimed this message of God's, the display of God's love in Christ, that the gospel of God's extraordinary love went throughout the world. And we saw, we see God's love going where? Beyond the borders of Israel. You see, friends, God is free to call individuals from all the nations of the world to be a part of His new people. God is free to call individuals from all the nations of the world to be a part of His new people. But remember, friends, neither Esau nor Jacob deserved God's love. Neither of these brothers deserved God's love. Neither Israel nor Edom deserved God's love. And you too, friends, none of you deserve God's love. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've all suffered the consequences of your sin this very week. But what separates Israel from Edom? What separates Esau from Jacob? As Paul says, the difference is God's purpose of election. God's purpose of election. God's extraordinary love in the midst of this messed up world. As we see the world around us, as we see our own lives, God's extraordinary love that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, it teaches us to interpret the world around us, God's providence. It teaches us to um, interpret your pain, your heartache, your suffering in the light of His promise of His love. And so, friends, when the difficulties of this life overwhelm us, instead of asking, how have you loved me? We remember the promise of God's extraordinary love. that He has displayed for us most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we remember that great promise of God's love that we see in Christ, we cannot help but shout in praise and adoration to the Lord. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider um, what we have been through this week, as we consider um, the pain and suffering and heartache that we've 
been overwhelmed with in this messed up world. We might have been led to question your love for us. How have you loved us? How have you cared for us? And yet, Father, as we ask that question, we realize that it comes not from a place of trust and belief, but a place of doubt and unbelief. And so, Father, we confess that sin before you, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts to see your love displayed for us in your merciful choice, to see your love displayed for us in your permanent rejection, to see your love displayed for us in your dominion. And we know that most clearly in your promise displayed to us, your love displayed for us in the work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we see you clearly, that you love us not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we've done enough, but only because your purpose of election might continue, because you are the one who calls, you are the one who gives new life, you are the one who changes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray and we plead that you would use us broken servants, jars of clay, to bring your love beyond the borders of Israel. We ask that you would do this for our comfort and for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. At this time, if you have children in the children's ministry, you can...